Alrighty, good afternoon everybody and welcome to number 13, lucky number 13, Brienne, of Overdose and Chill. Um, just realised that. Um, so today we are joined by the wonderful Brienne from Etik. Make sure you drop the H. Um, and hopefully Brienne's going to share some amazing insights in her uh, crazy fast growth business. Um, and uh, Brianne, why don't you give us the uh, quick elevator pitch of what Etik what is, and then we'll dive into some nitty gritty. Cool. Uh, so Etik is the world's most sustainable cosmetics company, or it's what we affectionately call it. Um, so it's about eight years old. Um, we produce everything you would imagine in your bathroom. So liquid shampoos, conditioners, moisturizers, dog shampoo, whatever. We oh, make wow. solid bar versions. So not to be confused with soap, but it's just a solid bar version because it means we've done away with the water so we can do away with the plastic. Um, it's really quite a simple concept and um, it's grown very, very fast. So it, it, is it genuinely as simple as that, that it's just shampoo without water and then repackaged? There must be a bit more science behind that. Well, yeah, okay, the formulation principle is is, is difficult um, and it certainly was back eight years ago when it was a much more unique concept. Um, but I guess from a trying to explain it to consumer standpoint, one of the things we say is because um, a lot of people are quite bar with soap, and mm -hmm. soap is cheap um, typically, and it's also um, a lot, if you've ever used soap to wash your hair, um, it's it's not the nicest feeling, and we want to get across the quality and the actual feel is exactly the same as if you're using a liquid bar. So to get that across to consumers, we say, imagine if you took a bottle of shampoo and boiled all the water off, what would you be left with? Um, gotcha. That's what's in a bar. It's, it's not technically correct, but it's it helps people understand. Amazing. Um, now, guys who are listening, um, if you do post comments, I can see them. So uh, please feel free to throw any questions in there for Brianne. Now, so so that concept of of the bar, did you invent that? It was 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 that the invention, or was it more about oh, no. taking that concept to market? No. Um. So shampoo. Well, I mean, soap's been around for however long, sure, hundreds sure. of years. Um. And we were literally thousands of years actually, because people were making it with with ashes and, and animal fats. Um. As for say a shampoo bar, um, the first one was around. Um. I think in sort of the very early, nineteen hundreds. Um. Mm -hmm. So no, certainly you wouldn't invent the concept. Really, just took it that little bit further. But it's it. I don't think there's many companies, or there certainly wasn't many companies out there doing. Um, shampoo conditioner, but now we have expanded it into the full range and taken it as far as I really think it should go, which is everything in your house, pretty much. Because as a nascent consumer, it feels like you opened that category up to the masses, though. It wasn't a, really a thing before Etique. Or was uh, it, it, just it probably sounds a bit arrogant, but yes, I think it's reasonably safe to say the the category has expanded since we've been around. Um, we've been very yeah. lucky, so we've been very successful and we've been talked about a lot. And I think that's really inspired consumers to ask more from their brands, which means brands have opened up and created bar products and new new um, companies dedicated just to producing bars have started up. So it's definitely expanded. I mean, we now even see companies like Unilever and L'Oreal creating bar products and that they certainly weren't around even two years ago. So is that equal parts hell yeah or is it equal parts kind of frustration as well that you feel they're jumping on your your bandwagon i always say uh we want a teak to be the company that puts a bar in every shower and that does not mm -hmm. mean an teak bar because we can't simply cannot do it all ourselves and people won't like our brand for whatever reason so no it's it's a hundred percent a good thing because the waste we produce is disgraceful mm -hmm. the one caveat there is because we have been a first mover 
we have been copied a lot and pretty blatantly in some instances and that's frustrating um and, and and to be honest a little upsetting because you know you put your heart and soul into your brand and your products um but the vast majority of, of other companies out there are creating new and exciting things themselves and that's awesome because we definitely cannot solve this problem on our own it's a closeted compliment though right so i'm told <laughs> love it so um uh that concept of waste um i think we shared one of your posts the other day nine million bottles you reckon you, you you've saved now yeah what's that yeah, what does that mean by volume you know if we're like filling containers this is numbers multiples of containers of, of bottles right it's hard to visualize and we're actually looking to get some kind of um, photography done so people can actually imagine how much yeah. how many bottles that is because it, it's really humans can't visualize those sorts of things mm -mm. um we had the maths done when we were at three million and i think it was something like so many football fields but that isn't actually necessarily any easy to visualize anyway it's every on average a 350 ml bottle will weigh about 25 grams so it works out to be um tons i can't do that math in my head about 200 and something tons i think right wow right incredible incredible um so so where does that that social responsibility and lean come from brianne how did you grow up you know did, did, did was, was that something that was born into you or was it something you yeah. addressed through your education um no i think it's always been there my parents are um just big believers in that life should be i guess at the very very base element is that life should be fair for everybody um, mm -hmm. and that means you don't destroy the environment because that affects other people and other animals um, both long and short term uh, it means you don't it just means you you don't treat people like you yourself wouldn't be treated so that is a supply chain reference so all our suppliers are paid a fair price for their product you know we work directly with so many producers so that we can assure they're being paid and treated fairly and that's uh, pretty unusual in our industry but I think I don't know i just i believe that that's the right thing to do and i just always have uh, money isn't i think perhaps a big part of it is money is not the number one motivator for me mm -hmm. um it is it sounds really twee when i say it but it, it is genuinely trying to make the world a better place i hate saying that mm -hmm. out loud, but that that is what makes me happy and rolling that out through a business is um i think it's one of the most effective ways to create real long-lasting change so how do you balance that internally at the business, you know, because you've obviously got a responsibility to grow a P&L and to grow a business, to be able to do better things. Um, how do you find that happy medium? Don't need to. So that's that's the uh, the sort of misconception people have about sustainable businesses. Therefore, you can't make any money. We have been profitable for years. We mm -hmm. are very comfortably profitable. Um, we donate 20% of our profit to charity, and that's a big number. Um, so we... Wow we are very financially sustainable and because we grow so fast because we have such a good story which is based on values 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 that people resonate with and therefore they want to support the brand so if we didn't have these values then arguably we wouldn't be anywhere near where we are now so you can't argue that the values and the sustainability and all of those pieces are integral to the brand and have made us as financially successful as we are there are the odd choices we have to make um so we had an opportunity with a really big retailer in the usa thousands of doors and we were very excited and we got sort of halfway through the onboarding process and they said okay you're gonna have to put every single product in a poly bag and i said well we won't <laughs> so that is a problem i'm sure there is a way around this problem um 
Uh, was no, that because of their internal health and safety or something? Leakage. And I said, our, our bars are solid, they, they can't leak. But unfortunately, when you're dealing with these massive corporates, obviously, they, they don't have any wiggle room. And mm. this, this was a deal worth millions of dollars. But in the end, we decided that not only was it the right thing to do, it wasn't worth the brand damage. There's just no way that would have made any financial sense in the long term. Would have been all right in the short term, but mm -hmm. that would have been millions of plastic bags you've then injected back in the environment. That makes no sense at all. And, and, and I don't and, have to fight that they're all 100% on board. And, and I, I assume you get the same from the investment community, those guys that, 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 that have backed you, they're morally aligned as well? Yes. Um, they're not all 100% values led. You know, some people are there for the money and that's fine. Um, mm -hmm. But we've never had any pressure of anybody to drop anything. Um, no, people people are happy as long as you're making money. I should imagine, to be honest, if we weren't, you'd be having a different conversation. Mm. People would be then True. less inclined to allow me to have these little whimsical values. Have you ever had had, had to turn down an investor because of that? Huh. Um we never really got quite to the point where we were offered a, a deal, but we certainly cut conversations with a couple very, very short because mm. of it, yes. Interesting. It was very apparent some people aren't that way inclined. You know what? Everybody's different. 100%. So tell me, um, being a, a female Kiwi entrepreneur, um, how's that stood you up about growing a global a global business and and you know let's not beat around but a young female kiwi entrepreneur you know um we're in the the back end of nowhere um have you found that the environment here and the culture here has been beneficial to that growth yes and no um we are as you mentioned in the middle of nowhere uh so we're very isolated so for a variety of reasons and COVID has obviously brought this into stark reality is it's difficult because we now we can't get places um so my mm. coo tristan and i would travel three weeks out of four internationally to build our distributor relationships and our, our marketing and, and do do all the PR and things. And um, it, it was, I enjoy traveling, uh, but that was pretty hard, particularly on Tristan because he has a family, um, but it had to be done and it is harder being isolated. Um, we're now with COVID, it is um, much more difficult to do that, of course. We are having to do everything digitally and virtually like this and it's, um, mm. It's tricky, but as as for the good thing, I mean, New Zealand has this enormous entrepreneurial culture. New Zealanders are, you know, the number eight wire, it's an overused cliche, but New Zealanders, I, I genuinely believe, are quite inventive and quite entrepreneurial and typically quite supportive. Um, there is there is a, a limit where you do get to the point where there is a bit of tall poppy that creeps in, but New Zealanders are, are amazingly supportive and very, um, keen to try new things, which helps because it's a little bit of a test mm -hmm. If you start a company here, it's a good place to try out a new product and see if it fails or works or whatever. Um, new Zealanders embrace new things quite nicely. And, and and do you use that brand New Zealand when you're going offshore? Depends on the country, yes. Okay, um, Not as is important, say, in America. Um, really? It can be okay. a little bit of a negative in the UK because of carbon miles. They're very carbon footprint aware over there. Mm -hmm. um, but in China, so we are beginning to experiment with e-commerce into China, and that's that is going to be a huge factor. So we've got lots mm. of New Zealand brands that do really, really well in China, and it's primarily because of the New Zealand clean, green image that we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I I think that that cultural separation and finding where to add value that's even harder to do in a digital landscape, right? Because you just can't feel that emotion that people are having, and you can't 
walk the floors of a of a Target and go and see what's selling and and what are people buying. Yeah, and and yeah, so it you're is still manufacturing. Really and and so you're still manufacturing hundred percent here, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, look, there's probably a business case. In fact, of course there is uh, for manufacturing in either somewhere in Europe or North America when we grow. Mm -hmm. But we will always manufacture. In New Zealand, we will always have head office here, um, but it doesn't make any sense. You know, at the end of the day, we're here to make the cosmetics world sustainable. And again, that sorry sounds a bit twee, but um, yeah. and, and it makes no sense to ship ingredients to one of the most isolated countries in the world and then ship them back out. That, that makes no sense. Um, so we will probably look to bolster manufacturing elsewhere, maybe in a, in a few years time when it makes sense to do so. But we'll always. Do and you reckon that will drag you away from New Zealand as well? Me personally, I mean, I'm not a manufacturing or supply chain specialist. It's really not my area of, of expertise or joy. Um, I, I love formulating the products. Um, okay. But, um, probably not. We're, we're trying to bolster our internal capabilities in terms of formulation. So it's pretty much mm -hmm. just me at the moment. So um, we're training some team members who can start picking that up and running with it and creating some amazing things. Very cool. So let's, let's wind back from... You know, I, I was doing my little bit of scouting and obviously Etik came out of your university project, was it? Or just a, a moment at university? Just a moment at university. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah, uh, I had started a couple of businesses when I was 19. Um, one was a cosmetics company and one was a confectionery company. And I got bored with both of them. They were quite fun. They taught me lots of what not to do in a business. Um, I made an awful lot of mistakes and got myself in a bit of financial trouble, to be perfectly honest. So I sold them both and tried to figure out why it is that I got bored because I really like business. I enjoy running businesses and making decisions probably because I just like being bossy. But when it kind of got to the less creative, more just doing it side, eh, it didn't fill me with joy. So I realized it was because I really wanted to combine my passion of um, the environment, animals, weirdly animal obsessed, I'm a weird person, and science, combine them all into this environmental scientific business that try to save the world and, and so i think probably the most tumultuous journey is taking concept and and sort of like that zero to one right i you know i, I think we talk about it a, a lot internally overdose that the ones to twos can be quite easy because you've kind of found your space in the world but that zero to one talk us through that journey of how you take concept into mass manufacture fundraising capital um, geez, trying to work out production, you know, I, I imagine you probably started on the kitchen table and there's these, you know, tumultuous scaling decisions. T talk us through that kind of that first 12 to 18 months and how you really change it from concept to, to, to an enterprise. Didn't happen in the first 12 to 18 months. Um, so oh, my okay. first, my first 18 months was still in my kitchen and I was still making 10 bars a day if I was lucky. Um, but I was struggling to keep up with demand. Can you even call that demand? <laughs> um, it was definitely an area of interest for a lot of people. Um, so our first step was into a very small unit, which honestly felt like a palace, but really was only 93 square meters. So it's tiny, currently in mm -hmm. 800 square meters. And figuring out how to make product. And honestly, it was really hard. We resorted to crock pots. So we went from 10 bars a day to 40. It wasn't really that much of a step up. We were still struggling. And the worst bit, well, it wasn't the worst bit, but uh, we we went viral around the world at that point. So in about um, 
2016, we had a whole load of international press. We were in the Huffington Post, and that was when Britney Spears and Ashton Kutcher shared us on Facebook. So we were just getting mental orders and and emails, and it was just crazy. And, so how did um, they get the products in, in, in their hands? Um, we don't know. Oh, oh, okay, so there's no, no, PR, idea. no, no, no. PR plan there, just completely... That was luck. Yeah, a lot of people are like, oh, you must be so so excited. And yeah, we were, but we're also a bit like, well, how did that happen? How do we do it again? Mm, mm. <laughs> but that, I think that comes back again to Brandon's story. But um, while these thousands of orders were coming in, we were still making 40 or 50 bars a day. And that, that was probably a solid 18 months of real pain. So that was when I hired Tristan and he figured out that you know, this this was never going to work manufacturing the way we were. So we had to partner with some very, very clever people. And now our manufacturing is done in Auckland through some amazing people who do this day in, day out. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, it took 18 months of pain and engineers and designing machinery and yeah, but it wasn't fun. So I was just saying, and, and did, did you do a couple of capital raises to be able to stimulate that growth? Yes. So the first capital raise, we we have funded the company probably in a more unusual way. So we've done some equity crowdfunding. And I'm a big fan of equity crowdfunding because I believe you can take your crowd, your early supporters on a journey with you and hopefully pay off some mortgages. That was always my goal. Um, but a lot of people consider it the baby way of raising money, which I find super offensive, but never mind. Um, so we did our first round in 2015 and raised 200K in 10 days, I think. And then that was super exciting because whenever you get a pledge, so we did it through Pledge Me, whenever you get a pledge, um, you get an email saying so-and-so has just given you, you know, $30,000. I mean, that is a pretty cool email. So your email um, is just lighting up for those 48 <laughs> yeah, hours. People yeah. saying giving you money, it's awesome. Um, <laughs> funny story. Yeah. <laughs> we, um, so we, the company started its life as um, Sorbet, like the, the dessert, the name Sorbet. Oh, it's yeah, yeah. Um, and I never really thought, you know, when you start a company in your kitchen, do you think about international trademarks? I certainly didn't. I mean, mm. I wanted it to be a billion dollar brand, but I, I had no idea what really that meant. I was 23. Um, so <laughs> after we closed this crowdfunding round, we had 152 new shareholders who trusted us with their money, $200,000. And then I had to email them all back um, about a weekend and say, look, I'm really sorry, but I've really dropped the ball. We can't trademark Sorbet anywhere. So we're going to have to change the name. Um, and that's where a tea came from. I think we panicked and came up with that about a week. So it worked out well. But we did our second crowdfunding round in two years later, 2017. Uh, we raised half a million in 90 minutes. So that one was incredible, dramatic. Incredible. <laughs> and, and how do you keep those shareholders up to date that they feel that they're still on that journey with you? <sighs> to be honest, I probably could have done better. Or could do better. Um, we email them. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it could always could always be more. Um, but when you're when you are running a business that's growing as fast as Tequa, you know, it's it's just pretty constant. And we're very lucky because mm. shareholders will email us all the time and they'll say, "Love to know what you're doing. Um, how can we help?" We have lots of offers of help, which is really kind. Um, but we would send them, you know, quarterly updates. Um, I just when I initially started out, I imagined that we'd have this cool shareholder club and we would have yeah, forums yeah. and we would talk, but you know, life never works out like it does in my head. Very cool. Okay, I've got a couple of questions here that people have been posting on LinkedIn. Um, the first one here is, what's in the works for Ethique over the next five years? 
without telling us too much of your trade secrets? What's the, the bigger and bolder vision? Well, I don't know if any of my team are listening. I suspect some of them are, and I might get in trouble. But um, we have a very, very big, very exciting product launch coming at the end of October. Now it's mm-hmm. something I've been working on for about two years, and I think it's a logical evolution of the brand. And it holds all our values, but it invites more people into the plastic-free, waste-free product world. Is that vague enough? Yeah, I'm quite proud of that. I didn't give anything away. I'm not going to be in trouble. I'm very excited. I so desperately want to tell people. So desperately. (laughs) Uh, So we're very excited about that. Yeah, that's about a month away. Um, And for other massive expansion, massive, massive expansion um, around through retail, um, focusing on the USA, Europe, and the UK. Um, But we Mm -hmm. are beginning to explore China, like I mentioned, to see how that will go. Yeah, so, so tell me, we'll be in more places and we'll have more products. Gotcha. Okay. So tell me, are you, are you one of those painful to live with entrepreneurs that is always resetting her goals? And even when you've achieved those goals you never thought you'd hit, you then just add a zero on the end? Yes, probably. So this year, mm-hmm. as you mentioned earlier, nine million plastic bottles, right? Well, I started the company with one million by 2020 being the goal. Right. Uh, Ten Sorry. still feels like a small number. Right. So the new goal, which I don't think I've even really said publicly yet, is half a billion by 2030. And we're on track to achieve that. So 500 million plastic bottles by um, 2030. I'm very excited about that. Um, But yes, I think so. I um, probably be a little challenging and a a little bit demanding. And I don't like it when people say something isn't possible. I appreciate some things aren't possible, but not that many things. Mm-hmm. Okay, next question here for you. Um, I think we slightly touched on this, but uh, I'm sure you got a few more insights. What are your greatest obstacles uh, for the company this year other than COVID? So what are the other kind of challenges you've had that aren't COVID challenges? Oh, it's hard to answer without COVID because the biggest challenges mm. we're facing is trying to grow like we are without being able to get to where we're growing. Um understand and believe there is a place for virtual communication but i don't believe you can build a relationship as well it's like we have a phenomenal relationship with our japanese distributors for example mm-hmm. and that's because we've gone over there and spent a lot of time with them and we wouldn't have that had we never done that um so that's going to be a huge cha- challenge but yes that is covid related um what about access to talent d- d- down in christchurch you, did you manage to find you know um a cert- a suitable supply of talent to keep up with your speed of growth? No, and I don't necessarily think that's a reflection on Christchurch as much as there's not that many people down here. Uh, It is a problem, uh, but we are, because of COVID, we are fast-tracking our international infrastructure. So we're putting an office into Mm -hmm. New York, uh, a satellite office. We're putting an office into London, well, the UK, probably won't be London, actually. And we've just put an office into Auckland. So Mm -hmm. We are spreading that a little bit now to try and get those really, really heavy hitters who've built big brands before, who will be in the offices in New York and London. Um, we, we hoped we could tempt people down to New Zealand, but no no luck as yet. But yes, that is that is tricky being based in Christchurch. I guess less so in Auckland, but New Zealand in general, I would have thought. Mm. So so you touched on, on this earlier as well of where you find passion in your business. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I have the same challenges my, myself at trying to work out where to point myself at inside the business because we've come from this space of where 
we used to clean the toilets, mop the floors, um, answer all the emails, be the dinner lady. Um, and, and have you faced those same challenges of where your role kind of gets narrower but becomes more yeah. impactful? Yeah, and honestly, I'm not very good at it. Um, I am a control freak, and I know a lot of people say that proudly, but it's not a good thing for me at all. Um, I do find it very difficult to let go, and I was definitely restricting the company's expansion because, you know, I wanted to make sure everyone – I interviewed everybody. Um, I, I will meet them before we hire them, but I don't now have to run the interview. Um, I mm. wanted to make sure that I was across every single piece of marketing communication we were in. Um, and I mean, this, I you certainly go in and have a look <laughs> and I will certainly spend a bit of time in our, in our customer, a uh, CRM to make sure I, I know what people are saying. So I'm still very much involved, uh, but I have learned to trust people. And that's not because they weren't trustworthy before. It's because I simply find it difficult to let go as I imagine you did. It is, mm. it is tricky because you are trusting people with your baby and you've got to ensure that they feel about it the same way as you do. And of course they won't because it's, what you created right but I think this is helped by the fact that the people in this building are as passionate about our causes as I am so they therefore want the company to be as successful as I do because that then impacts what we're trying to do um and that yeah that that helps I'm, I'm learning I'm not good at it I don't like delegating um and, and you know what and actually a lot of the time it makes me feel like I'm useless at my job too because I should be good at that, but oh, I, I completely hear you. That that um imposter syndrome that you've kind of built a business that feels bigger than yourself. Yeah, yeah. I hear you on that loud and clear. Yeah. Um. So, so your key focus is product and brand. Yeah. Um. Yes. Yeah. So, so where do you look for for your inspiration? What spins your wheels and you know gets those creative juices flowing and you know, is it is it pausing and, and reflection or is it kind of intensity and looking at the whole markets? Where do you find that spark I, that drives? I don't like innovation? following a market leader. Okay. Um, so I um, I try not to look at what other companies are doing and then emulate that. I'm not a fan. Um, okay. So I I find them the least productive and the least creative or outward thinking when I've been spending seven days a week on the business for weeks and weeks and I'm tired and I'm pretty sure that's not a surprise to anybody. Um, so I find if I spend a few days, I don't know, at the beach or I dive, um, I have horses um, and I find spending time with them because you've stopped thinking about it and stop working on mm -hmm. it, or, sorry, in it, you start working on it and that's when you when you have your greatest ideas. I have ideas at the randomest times. Mm. Very, very strange. but. Um, that's what works for me. And how do you test those ideas? Is is that like a internal brains trust that, that you run your craziness through? Um, and they tell you you're talking rubbish, but you belligerently follow through? Um, so uh, happens to me. That's what happens to me. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I suppose I kind of just ignore people. Sometimes I don't tell people. Uh, it's... I have lots and lots and lots of ideas and let's be frank, nine out of 10 of them are rubbish or they're great in an ideal world that doesn't exist. So I will usually go and talk them over with a practical member of the team. So my COO or the accountant or someone who understands how the real world works. And they mm -hmm. will say, well, that won't, that isn't possible right now because of this, this and this. And I will push them on it and I'll probably get quite annoying. Um, and if the, we come to the conclusion that it really isn't possible, we'll put it on pause till 
you know, we can reevaluate re it later, or I'll just go and do it anyway, and um, they will tidy up anything that broke. And unfortunately, <laughs> it's happened a few times too. Never um, a dull day working with Brianne then. No, I have, uh, I honestly, I should imagine I am really annoying, but I cannot help it. I really can't. It comes from a good place. Yeah. Talk us through one of those stories then where um, it went belly up and you had to rescue it. <laughs> It's always Ooh. good to talk about failures. Um, I suppose it would be after. <laughs> so I am always imagined that a tech would be a, a digital company first. It would always be D2C. Okay. Like I mentioned earlier, I don't like distributors because I think you lose control of your brand, which isn't true, but I thought that back then. So I always wanted to be a teak online shopping. I watched all these unicorns start these companies and just sell directly, you know, Dollar Shave Club, just sell directly to customers and do so well on the outside. And I thought that was Atik's destiny. And um, I opened a warehouse in the USA and I'd never even been there. I just assumed that everything on the website was true. Um, they said that yes, they would be able to ship plastic free for us and yes, they would manage everything and everything would be fine. And I had no idea about logistics. We had three team members at that point and we were like, oh, this is so good. We shipped the product and they sorted it all out. It was the biggest disaster. We lost a lot of brand image. We were you know, not even in our infancy, whatever it was beneath infancy in the American market. And we destroyed our brand reputation because they sent it out plastic. They didn't send it out at all. They sent out random product. Um, it was a disaster and I pitched them based off a nice website. So Tristan came in and sorted that out, no problems. And now we have a wonderful warehouse in the USA. But um, that was one example of me racing ahead because I didn't want to do any due diligence. They had a great website. The guy I talked to on the phone was nice. So let's just go ahead and do it. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. I do take things at face value a little bit too much. Um, I think that's the one that probably gets talked about the most. But, but you, you must see that there is benefits from that speed, call it naivety, but that aggression and not procrastinating definitely um we've got a team full of doers because i cannot mm. cope with a team full of talkers and i find a lot of corporates and um we we speak to a few investment specialists of so vcs and pe funds and everything is you know we'll have a meeting and we will run a we'll run a workshop or we'll have a we'll have a focus group and i honest to god it drives me mental not only is the information these focus groups come up with wrong most of the time, because people say things and then don't actually do them, mm -hmm. um, but it's so slow. You've got four months of development before you even start thinking about making a prototype. It's mental. Just go out there and test something. I'm not saying create a product, for example, and then send it to every distributor you have and put hundreds of thousands of dollars of marketing behind it. But just go out and test it in small market and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's always got to be safety standards in place, but with what we're dealing with, we don't have that as much of an issue because, you know, obviously we know what we're doing um, and there are basic safety tests to run. But I don't understand why people have put so much emphasis behind planning everything to death. And I think it's a form of fear um, and it is a big step and it's big and scary for a lot of people to take a step into running their own business. I understand that. Um, but yes, I having the, the gumption to go and do something and not really worrying. Mm. I worry, but not not focusing on that worry, I guess. That is what, that's really important for a business. You need people and businesses to do that just as much as you need people who would plan because there is a happy medium. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think, I, I, I don't think I know. I know that the best on, on entrepreneurs in the world are genuinely fearless, right? And it's that, mm. it's that complete self-awareness and willing to back yourself. Um, I, I expect you had some of the same as I did on my journey as growing growing a 
large international company, which was where I felt that I, I had to restrain my aggression, right? So as the business became bigger and there was more people's lives and mortgages, you know, and car payments on the line, that those, those all-in punts stopped being about, you know, I've got enough money in the bank to survive for six months, and it was having that broader impact. And a lot of the realization I had, which kind of took us on our second lift of growth, was my leadership coming to me and just going, reins off, just fucking go crazy, go for it, right? Um, and we will ride through that. Um, and, and, and speed builds that momentum, and that momentum is just intoxicating for the whole group of staff around you as well, right? Because they're on that journey. They've invested their career to come on that journey with you. Yeah. So yeah, last you're right. question. You're right. You that responsibility. Oh shit! Yeah. That's what keeps me awake up at night. It's literally the responsibility to to my crew. Um, yeah. Last question, because I've chewed up half an hour of your Friday afternoon. Um, just a bit of advice for young entrepreneurs, because I know you know my 13 year old daughter literally has you and Lisa King on an absolute pedestal um, of you know <laughs> people that have taken social responsibility and taken it from that marketplace trader farmer's market table, but embraced capitalism whilst embracing social responsibility. Um, young entrepreneurs that are out there and want, want to follow your journey, give us a bit of a soothsaying. A lot of people will say that what you want to do isn't possible. Um, and I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if it's people who don't want to see you succeed people who are looking out for your well-being because they don't think so, don't think they could do something means that you can't do it. Um, it's not an actual, it's not a reflection on the reality of the situation unless you want to walk to the moon, whatever. If you if you want to do something, work to it and try it. There is no harm in putting a small amount of your time and a, if it's a really big loon shot, maybe not too much of your money, uh, into trying something. Uh, so many people plan something, as I mentioned earlier, plan something to death and they just don't go and do it. So if you are someone who's got this burning desire to do something, but you're surrounded by people who are naysayers, go and find someone who is a yaysayer. Is that a word? It is now. Uh, go and <laughs> go and find someone who will support you and perhaps put some framework or some, some thinking that you hadn't, already got around your idea and see if you can go and do it from a slightly more balanced viewpoint. Um, when I started Atik, as I mentioned, I was in a, a place that was that was not great financially and not a single person said it was a good decision apart from my parents. Mm -hmm. um, and here we are today. So not every decision you make will be a good one, but you should go and try them if that's your burning desire to do so. And don't let other people put you off. And the other side of that, of course, is surround yourself with people with experience and people who are cleverer than you and that might be a slight blow to your ego, but trust me, you'll get over it and you realise how wonderful other people make your business. Um, but also bear in mind that they don't know everything about your company. You are the person who knows the most about your brand, certainly to begin with. And if they are saying that you should do something that is fundamentally against your values or against your brand or against what you want to do, you don't have to do it. Just because someone's giving you advice doesn't mean you need to take it. And then my final piece, and I've gone on, is um, I truly believe that business is the way to create a better future because business is faster than government will ever be and consumer influences business. So uh, for people who are starting a business in the future, I really think you need to incorporate social or environmental or both values into whatever it is you're doing. And that's not to say you need to donate 100% of your profit, but it is, you know, you need to find a living wage certified. You need to have something beyond just making money now to, to really have that cut through. I can give you a fist bump for that. <laughs> um, the um, so 
all power to you, Brianne. I think it's an incredible journey you've been on. Um, I spotted you're up for some some awards soon. Can we be voting for you on those? Or that uh, is it? I don't the think best so. Award? No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The design. I think you're voting, but you can vote. But thank you. We'll follow keenly. Um, thank you for sharing your time and insights and experience and knowledge. Incredible, incredible, incredible. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful weekend. Um, and uh, um, let's do this again in another year and, and see if we're up to that sort of 20, 25 mil this time next year. That's good. <laughs> brilliant. Thank you very Thanks much. And thank you to your team as well, because you're brilliant to work with. Awesome. Cheers. Thanks. Catch you, team. See you.